Welcome to the Leading with Data podcast, the show where we explore the intersection of data, strategy, leadership, and results. The show is brought to you by Molecula, and I'm your host, Jason Dorsey. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Leading with Data podcast. We are so happy that you have joined us today. We have a very special guest, someone who I know is going to bring energy, perspective, insights, and so many great things to this conversation around leading with data. I'm just absolutely thrilled to bring you today, Bryson Kaler. Welcome, Bryson, to the show. Thanks, Jason. It's great to be here. I love data. I love tech, and uh, it's just going to be a fun time. So thanks. Well, we're, we're so glad you're with us today. And, you know, I always like to start off the show asking you, how did you get into your current role? And I, I know it's quite the story. You've, you've always got a lot of responsibility in your current role. But how did you get into this and how did you get to where you are now? You know, I have been a geek since I was eight years old. And I just, I love tech. I love technology. I've taught myself to code. I, I started tinkering and just that's what I grew up loving to do. And, and so, you know, as I started my journey and my career, I just gravitated towards the technology space, leading teams, um, being a developer, being a project manager, uh, sysadmin, carrying a pager, you know, doing all of those things. And then just realizing that, um, you know, leading the technology team and bridging the gap between business and tech and what tech could do and helping companies realize that technology leaders are really business leaders. They're really business leaders that just happen to know a lot about tech. And, you know, so my my focus has always been around figuring out how do I bridge that gap and how do I help a company really see the value that technology can bring for them to think differently? Because not all companies are tech startups, right? There's a lot of enterprises that are just trying to figure out how they transform themselves. And so then I've, you know, spent the last 15 years really focused on transformational type goals, going in and helping companies change, fundamentally change themselves, technology being a driver of that, um, but really realizing that it's all about people and the business and and changing the company from the inside out. And uh, so the Equifax opportunity, uh, being the CTO there and and also leading product, um, was just an awesome opportunity to help a company that needed to go through change, had a very fast time line to hit related to change, but also knowing that if we help Equifax change, serving our purpose of helping people live their financial best could really come to life um, if we thought about technology differently. Oh, love that. And you said multiple things that resonate with me. Uh, geek, obviously I am one. Not many people say, ah, I'm going <laughs> to write a book when I'm 18 years old. Uh, and you know, also studied archaeology and economics and then random things like poetry. And then at the same time, uh, you said pager, which was very exciting as a generational researcher. You don't, you don't hear pager that much anymore. So thank you for that, Bryce. And, uh, and sysadmin, who doesn't get excited about that? So as you sort of think about this journey that you've been on, What I love is that you sort of separated the idea that there's lots of people that go into younger companies and they're trying to really help it evolve and innovate and grow and adapt to crowded markets and stand out and all those sorts of things. But in my line of work, you know, most of our clients are enterprise clients and they're much more in the space that you're talking about. They have an established business. They may even be a market leader, but they absolutely know they've got to continue to innovate. They got to continue to grow. They've got to continue to go on this journey and not uh, essentially become stale because that's where the real risk is. And it's often from those, you know, challenger type brands and businesses and, you know, leading 
uh, with data is obviously so important in that connection between data and technology and being a business leader. I think all of those come together, which sort of leads right into my next question. What is the uh, most important decision that you've made using data and how did it work out? Well, I think when you, when you look at how a company needs to transform itself and setting what that product direction is going to be, you have to use data to make those decisions. Where can you really differentiate? Where can you focus? Um, and one of the areas that we've done at Equifax over the last couple of years is really double down on our identity and our fraud business. And we use data to make that decision. Um, to understand, we really can connect signals between lots of different uh, data inputs. And we understand who is Bryson? Where has Bryson been? What is Bryson doing? And how do we do use that to help detect fraud? How do we use that to help protect Bryson, whether it's his identity or other types of fraud that could be uh, attempted against me? Using data to make those products better, we knew that we could be differentiated. And so we placed a bet um, and it is really paying off. Uh, we've launched uh, seven new products into the market um, and we've got you know, tremendous uh, growth. And, and in fact, some of the companies, even in the last three weeks that I've been talking to that have launched on the new fraud platforms that we've been working on that are all very data-based, not data-based, but data-based, um, have shown seven, eight-fold increase in fraud detection uh, wow. by getting onto the new platform. And that's fantastic because fraud, I think, is something we could all agree that we all want to stop. Yeah. And so when we, when we see data being used, when signals can come together, when we can key and link those against the right attributes of an individual, then we can really help. We made that bet. It was based on data and it's paying off. I love that. Yeah, as, as I think you know, I serve on uh, fintech boards and work in venture capital. And so uh, everything you just described is sort of what we live day in and day out. And it, I think it's unfortunately woefully misunderstood by the general public at just how big of an issue this is and how important it is. And even in our own research, uh, the younger you go by generation, the less concerned they are, uh, interestingly, about privacy, security, and many of these things. And what we've been able to figure out is they're also the ones that have, in some ways, less at risk because they don't yet have mortgages. They don't yet have credit built up. They don't yet have all these things. And so it's going to be interesting to see, and this is what we're tracking closely, is does their perception of privacy, data security, and so forth, does that change as they get older? And so therefore, it's life stage and not generational, which, you know, is a big quest that we're always on to separate. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think it will change. I, I think that, you know, look, and I, I have a 17 year old son who, you know, had some uh, fraudulent activity against his debit card. And that was his first experience of, hey, dad, what's going on here? And next thing I know, he's got multi-factor authentication turned on across <laughs> yeah. all of his account. Like, you know, so, I, you know, sometimes you just have to have a bit of a wake up call. And you have to your point, you have to have something to lose. And um, you know, I think as, as uh, the kids grow up, as these generations age, they'll have more and more to lose, whether that's personal, social, reputation, or financial, or whatever. And, and I think that uh, we'll see them rein that back in. Yeah, I think you're, you're exactly right. That's my prediction as well. I think that's what that uh, we'll, we'll be tracking closely. Uh, so, you know me, I love data. I love the intersection of data and technology and innovation. So what is uh, an unexpected opinion that you have about data or maybe the future of data? Well, 
I think there's no such thing as bad data. I think all data is good data. Um, and I, I think that, that in, the, in the past, we, data was very difficult to work with, uh, cleansing it, ETL, processing, storage, everything was just hard. And so we did spend a lot of time, I think, dropping data on the floor because it was easier to get rid of it than it was to manage it. And, and anytime you sense that it was bad data, you just got rid of it. And my view is, is that that's just flawed. And that especially now with uh, cloud-based thinking, cloud-native design around how you manage data, all data is good data. Because even the bad data can help you with your training. If you think about machine learning and modeling, you can now learn the bad data. And the bad data also tells you uh, interesting facts. It tells you a story. It gives you insights. And so I really think that if more companies recognize all of their data, including their bad data was good data, that we, we could find uh, a lot more insights, solve a lot more problems, uh, and move faster uh, at innovation. Yeah, I agree. I don't know if you ever heard me speak about this, but the way I always say it is that that all data gives us clues. You know, it may not give us the answers. <laughs> it certainly may not give us the answers we want, but there's clues in there if you know how to look at it. So I love that. I love that. That's very, uh, it's, a, it's a great way to, to sort of come at it differently. Okay, so sort of putting on a different hat. I know you lead a very large organization. You have lots of experience in leadership roles. What do you think is uh, the most important, what's most important when it comes to being an effective leader now, I mean, this is a very unusual time, uh, all kinds of reasons we can point at, but, but if you sort of step back, what do you think is the most, most important thing when it comes to being an effective leader now? High energy, uh, passion, uh, get in there, love what you do. If you love what you do, uh, it wears off on the people around you. And I really believe that as a leader, you know, I have three main purposes. One is to attract a team that loves what they do. And so I have to do that myself. The second is I, I really want to make sure that I'm setting people up for success. So listening to what people need and helping them clear roadblocks and be set up for success, especially in these challenging times when we're all changing our work style, our work location, um, camera on cultures and all of these things that are evolving around us. We need to be active listening around what do we need to do to help Bryson get set up for success and what can I do as a leader to help him or him do that. And then the third is I want to make you more employable. So be brave about helping your team be more employable. Constantly teach them new technology skills, new cultural skills, help them understand philosophically how to think differently um, and be brave that helping someone become more employable. Yes. You know what? They may go take a job somewhere else and that may be a loss to you, but be, be happy for them. And I have found that if you help people become more employable, more often than not, they stay because they're excited to continue to learn. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. You know, I always think about it as if you invest in your employees, they'll invest back in you. And and, and totally you got to have sort of this abundance mentality when it comes to that versus scarcity. Uh, you just, and I think, you know, with, co with, with how we're all handling the current, you know, pandemic and the changing of work, it's now more important than ever for leaders to be bold around that and be out there and talking and listening and, and doubling down on 
training and new skills and learning and educating. Um, because frankly, we all need a little bit of a distraction. Um, and, and we need to try to make the, you know, the day as normal as we can be and infusing that with new knowledge and new thinking and an opportunity to take a pause and, and read and digest and think is really important right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and we certainly see that in this hybrid work environment and everybody's trying to juggle lots of different things and kids running in the backgrounds. And in my case, a puppy we have in the background, right? All of these things going on. There's just a lot. We're, we're carrying a lot on our shoulders. And I think that's so important the way you, you said that. So let me ask you, uh, sort of take a different direction, because uh, you know me, I love to talk about the future. Uh, what is one prediction you have about the future of data and business? I think that we will find that consumers will want to consent more and share their data more as they understand the value exchange they get back by doing it. So I think that transparency of data, transparency of consent, and engaging individuals to be a part of that journey not because it's some sort of privacy policy or there's some you know, regulatory mandate around it, but because people want to have a trusted value exchange established with the companies they do business with. And the more that companies approach this as a positive versus a regulatory commitment, I think that they will move ahead faster. And so I, I think the future holds um, not a regulatory-based approach to data privacy, data governance, and overall consent, but one where companies start to recognize that they can differentiate and they can outperform by building that trusted value exchange with their customers and then being openly transparent and engaging around the value exchange that comes with that, that data handoff, that trusted handshake between me and that that third party. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting that you, you frame it that way. One of the studies we participated in, we've, we've done it for a few years now, uh, asks about willingness to share data, right? And, and exchange for something. And what we found is that the younger you go, particularly around Gen Z and younger millennials, they are much more willing to share their data as long as they have a better experience because of it. And that was really the key thing. If they did not get something out of it for that exchange, then they, they felt that it was a bad deal. But if they were going to get something that made their lives better, shopping, predictions, whatever it is, then they were willing to do it. And I think that's fascinating because so often it has felt like a one-sided trade, right? And so this idea. Yeah, you have to make it real. And, you know, I go back to my days when I was at the weather company and, you know, we had, uh, you know, our weather uh, information and apps deployed on over a billion devices. And we had, you know, 80, 90% opt-in on, on location sharing. And well, you know, it's pretty easy value exchange. Like if you want to know the weather, you probably ought to tell me where you are. Um, <laughs> so that was a pretty easy, not, not every value exchange is that simple, yeah. but you have to think about like, how do I make the user understand the benefit they're going to get by sharing what I'm asking them to share? Um, and yeah, I think it is easier to your point on the younger generations, but we need to figure out how that story goes all the way through um, because obviously we all are facing users on our, on our apps um, 
that are of all generations. Yeah, absolutely. And we will for, you know, a much longer period of time. I mean, we've got absolutely. four or five and we predict we'll have six generations of consumers that we're all going to be trying to effectively engage. So I, I couldn't agree with and you I more. And I think the one thing that will be important across all six of those generations is the understanding of that trusted exchange. And yes, maybe it's easier to sell the younger generation, but to your point and that study that you referenced, you had to at least acknowledge that there was a benefit by sharing. And yeah, maybe the story is harder to sell. Uh, the, bar, the bar is higher as you go up to an older generation, but don't let that scare you. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think we've seen with this pandemic forcing so many people to start to use apps and do more things online that they weren't used to. We've definitely seen everybody calls it an acceleration. I think it's probably more than that in terms of how people are now conditioned to engage. Uh, it's fascinating to see that there is uh, a greater willingness to share more in order to get better things. Even just the idea that I can save my shopping cart of groceries and then you're going to recommend that to me. Uh, it, it just basic things like that start to condition people to say, okay, this is, this is okay to do. We'll leave information in and it's going to make my experience better. And then I think we can go deeper and deeper. And I that. think the trick is, you know, AI is a black box and, you know, a lot of work going into the explainability side of AI. Um, we obviously face that in the uh, credit world, making sure that we have explainability for every decision that we make. Um, and, but I think as we think about predictive AI and, and we think about explainable AI, I, I think that those two, uh, you know, fields of study and work will help. Uh, because as we unpack the black box of AI that is behind a lot of those shopping cart models and we help it become explainable and understood, people will be more willing to share because they're not scared of, you know, what's going on. Yeah. And what we've seen, it's so interesting. You know, we study language because language is one of the key differentiators by generation. Uh, when we test AI as a term or machine learning, uh, people uh, in many generations are very leery of it. But if we tell them what it does in simple English, they all raise their hand and say, yeah, I want that. So it's just, it's fascinating how we associate fear and uh, the unknown with different terms. So, so last question for you. Uh, and I always like to end with this one, Bryson. You've been so generous with your time and your expertise, and it's just awesome to get to be with you today. What is your favorite leadership quote, saying, or motto, and why? You got something great to leave our listeners with? Um, I, my favorite is very simple. Safe is risky. And I think safe is risky is an interesting way to think about our job as leaders. And sometimes our, we want to continue to focus on making it safe. Um, but in the long run, if you play it safe, it turns out being a riskier proposition and maybe being a little bit more aggressive earlier on. And so safe is risky is my favorite kind of just general philosophy and, uh, on how we look about leadership. I love that. And I love that that helps you to drive innovation. It's phenomenal. And we're out of time, but I just want to thank you again, Bryson. Really an honor to get to be with you today. Big shout out to Molecula, the sponsor for our show. Please join us for the next episode of Leading with Data. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us on the Leading with Data podcast. I'm your host, Jason Dorsey, and it was so much fun to get to bring this podcast to you. Big thanks to our sponsor, Molecula, for making this possible. For those of you who'd love to learn more about Molecula, definitely worth checking them out. You can visit Molecula.com, and I look forward to you joining us on the next podcast.